Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. And let's talk about Jesus. Uh, it sounds like we've got a popular subject to talk about, haven't we? It's all about Jesus, all about Jesus. Uh, a title of, of, of today's uh, sessions, both sessions. Um, and it's just a, a joy, isn't it, to talk about Jesus. And he's the one we love, the one we give our lives to, um, the one we talk to. Um, day by day, the one we're in relationship with, and so to talk about him is is easy. Um, it's not difficult to talk about Jesus. Um, anybody love Jesus? Um, one of the questions that sort of, said, said what I do sort of in, in my uh, work life, which is a real pleasure, is um, like training ordinands who are going into the Anglican Church for ministry. But one of the questions, one of this big thing that they've got at the moment in, in, in the Anglican Church is sort of for ministers going in training is not that they know so much um, knowledge, uh, you know, but, but their relationship with Christ is really, really important. And so um, one of the questions, because I meet you sort of, Staff have different numbers, so maximum 12, so I've got 11 I meet with. One of the questions I love to ask them when I meet on one-to-ones, and I'll be doing that this afternoon and right through till Wednesday to residential in, in Swanwick. I'm going to straight after this. But what, what, one of the things we love to do and um, is just ask them, why do you love Jesus? Um, you know, meeting the tutor, what's he going to ask me? Sort of, have I learned this or that? And the other. Just ask him, why do you love Jesus? And it's, it's such a, a great question to ask anybody, and especially anybody going into uh, church leadership. Why do you love Jesus? Why are you doing this? What, 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 what really matters? And this whole thing, um, they call them formation groups, this whole thing of wanting to see more than have you got a degree. I think what happened is a couple of years ago, uh, the dean of the college uh, met someone who sort of, when he was at college, sort of bossed it, aced it with all the marks, got fantastic grades, and said, oh, you remember that dissertation? It was a great dissertation. It sort of got a first class, brilliant, absolute brilliant piece of work. And then he confessed to the dean, well, actually, while I was working at it, um, you know, I stopped reading the Bible, stopped praying, because I was just so committed to that. Uh, getting a good grade and sort of shook the staff uh, to the core and thought this is not what we're trying to do in terms of forming people for church ministry it's what we want to do is to see people in relationship with Christ that matters more and to see Christ formed in them so hence you know the sort of questions we ask now may be different to what we did years ago and uh, I just wanted to see Christ forming it and I think for us as well just what we're doing now it talking about Jesus it's remembering this is the person we want to see formed in us it's the one Paul prayed for the Galatians I mean the pains of childbirth until I see Christ formed in you uh, and our prayers for one another in the church are some, sometimes you know it's not that we get the job not that we pass the exams, not that we do well in our careers, but that Christ is formed in us. Um, and I think, you know, somebody once said, and, and that relationship with him is, is so, so important in our lives, isn't it? Somebody once said, um, some saint in the past said, you know, the person who finds time for prayer finds time for everything. 
And it's that thing of putting prayer, that relationship with God before everything else. Uh, and just, you know, knowing what it is. Yeah, to talk with the Lord during the day, on the, you know, when you're on the move and driving or getting on the bus or whatever. But to have that time as well, that special time when you, you, you just know him. And it's not because of works, we've said about that, but it's just because of who he is and your relationship and your love for him and your growing love for him. And, uh, and it's all... Uh, by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And it's impossible to talk about Jesus without talking about the Spirit of Christ. And that's where we want to land, uh, but we're going to start off talking about Christ's birth. I don't know, uh, we're coming up, it's great to talk, um, you know, about Christ's um, birth and Christmas is coming. Um, now, please don't be offended if you do this, all right? If you do do this, please don't be offended about what I'm about to say. But I, I, I when I first went to Congo, this is being recorded, but they won't listen to it. Um, um, but there's a, a, a missionary family that I sort of went to, a single missionary, 23, call of God on my life, went out to Congo in 1923. And so there was another missionary family who sort of put me up while my house was sort of rebuilt because the goats had licked the wall and the wall had fallen down. It was mud brick. It was, they'd put something in the plastic that so made the goats lick it and I was there for the first Christmas I was out in Congo it was terribly sad because I was missing my family but what they did is is they sang happy birthday to Jesus on Christmas day and I remember thinking do you not know it, it, it hasn't got a birthday and that because he existed before that um, and I get it so if you do sing happy birthday to Jesus at Christmas I, 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 I please you can do, all right, if you want to. As long as you realise you're, you're singing about his sort of biblical sort of beginning in human flesh. However, however, when we look in scripture, there's a little bit of a mystery to us because we all understand, and we're going to be celebrating it in a few weeks' time, just how God, the Son, who uh, you know became took on human flesh Philippians chapter 2 emptied himself as we're going to see of that divine um, you know uh, the, the perks if you like of being divine of living in the father's glory and took on human flesh we're going to look at that but and, and then you know just how that was the the official beginning however um, when we look at scripture Something in the Old Testament and New Testament uh, emphasizes is obviously his pre-existence. We don't think there's any doubt about that, that he existed eternally as God the Son. Um, but as part of the Godhead before his birth in Bethlehem, there are things that theologians call theophanies, appearances of God. Uh, in human flesh and some of those theophanies can even be described as Christophanies appearances of Christ in human flesh which sort of if they're right and we, we, we you know it's, it's a suggestion rather than a stipulation that we, we, we look at this but if they're right then obviously it's sort of when did Christ take on human flesh because there are times um, when we see Christ appearing in the Old Testament, uh, you know, before his official incarnation, as it were. Um, so let, let's, ju you know, Theophanies, just 1.1 I'm on, um, you know, the Bible teaches that God is invisible and God is spirit. 
um, and is the invisible God. Um, and you know, 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Um, but scriptures, the Holy Spirit is very helpful to us in terms of helping us, inspiring scripture, even in the Old Testament, helping us to understand something about God by using this massive word, which I put the definition of in there, uh, anthropomorphisms, in describing this invisible God in ways that perhaps we could understand him better. So in terms of having a human body. So for example, scripture talks about his eyes, behold us, his arm is stretched out to save and so on. And these are anthropomorphisms and can be seen as a concession, if you like, to our ad slowness to understand our, our incapacity to fully understand and we never will understand so don't think we're going to work it out today we never will understand you know the, the incomprehensibility of this great and mighty god creator of the universe who existed before time began who's immortal who's invisible who's the only wise god um, but so we've got those anthropomorphisms where it describes God in that way. Um, for example, to the Israelites, um, when God wants them to understand that uh, he really loves them, uh, he talks about rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. Now, just a minute, God doesn't need an outstretched arm and a mighty hand to do anything. You know, he just speaks and worlds come into, you know, galaxies are formed. He's that powerful. God is that almighty. Um, so when he talks about the ones he loves rescuing them with an outstretched arm, what's he doing? He's showing them, uh, you know, just how much he loves them. But he's, he's stretching, he's putting energy into it, um, is what he's showing, which God doesn't have to do that. But because he loves them, you know, there's a verse in Jeremiah, I can't remember where it is, 28 or something, or 27 or 17, uh, anywhere in Jeremiah, really. But, but, um, but there's a verse there where it talks about, you know, their Redeemer is strong. Redeemer being the closest relative uh, to someone. Their Redeemer is strong. Uh, and, and, you know, just, wow, we all want a strong, close relative. I remember when I was at school, uh, you know, being bullied at primary school, as you were in my day. Um, nobody took any notice of that bullying. It wasn't very serious. Everybody got bullied. And, uh, and you know, like the bully would come, want, would give us your sweets. No, all right, it's sock it in the face and whatever until you gave until you handed them over um, but then I saw other kids do it and um, they'd go to somebody else in the class and they say give us your sweet I'll get my brother onto you Ooh, and they step back because <laughs> uh, well, they've got someone a close relative who's going to defend their cause and uh, I tried it and my brothers were squirtier than me and they just like <laughs> nah give us your sweets didn't work but there's this wonderful verse where you know you've got this idea of the kinsman redeemer when you get into trouble into debt or something like that you've got this kinsman redeemer who's going to come and rescue you um, and, 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 and it's wonderful to see how God describes himself you know their redeemer is strong and it says in that verse in Jeremiah where I can't remember which chapter it is in the NIV if it says you know he'll vigorously defend their cause it's as though God's coming and with power he's defending their cause and you know I've, I, that's 
great. I've got a redeemer like that. I have, I might have weedy big brothers, um, but I've got a redeemer, a close relative. It's my father. As you know, he, he's strong and he'll vigorously defend that. Of course, don't touch him. He's the apple of my eye. Don't touch her. She's precious daughter to me. You know, there's something about God that when we're in trouble, he comes to defend our cause uh, and he's on our side and he's for us, not against us. Uh, and that's just wonderful, isn't it? And, and, and to help us understand that, Scripture to the Israelites, it, it delivers you with an outstretched arm, a mighty hand, he comes to deliver you. And it helps us, an anthropomorphism that helps us understand something of who God is um, and what his nature is. And so you do have those instances, but then you have instances where Scripture records you know, God appearing visibly, um, often in human form. Um, and such an appearance theologians call a theophany, an appearance of God. Um, so, you know, Adam, for example, uh, hears God walking. Just hearing, but hears God walking. Abraham famously encountered God in the form of a smoking brazier with a blazing torch at the time, you know, the covenant was established and, and God goes between the broken parts of that. And God appears, not in human form there, but in, in visible form. And later God appears uh, again to Abraham as a messenger. And you've got those, um, you know, Rublev, I've put the little picture of it, Andre Rublev's icon, the hospitality of Abraham, which is, if you've never seen anything about that, look it up. Uh, great picture helping us to understand something of the nature of God. But, it's, but the idea is it's the three messengers who came to Abraham. He appears to Moses at a burning bush in the fire. He appears to Moses in the burning bush. Appears to the children of Israel as a pillar of cloud by day and, uh, 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 and a pillar of fire by night. On going into Canaan he appears to Joshua as the commander of the army of the Lord. And those theophanies, those appearances of God in human form or in the form of like a blazing fire or whatever, um, they, 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 they come to an end with the temple being established in Jerusalem, although the exception is, is Daniel um, you know, at 3, when uh, the king sees the fourth man like the appearance of a son of man that's the one time when there is this sort of appearance of uh, a possible theophany and you, you go on you, you've got um, Isaiah and Ezekiel they don't actually see theophanies or Christophanies they have visions which is different to actually something in the physical flesh um, and so when the prophetic ministry is established by David and, uh, um, and, and, and the temple with its sacrifice uh, ritual, it becomes the vehicle that God used to bring his self-revelation to Israel. Temple ministry alongside prophetic ministry is how you knew God after these theophanies, Christophanies, whatever you want to call them, is how you knew God until Christ appears and um, God becomes visible in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's why Jesus can say to you know, Philip, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Suddenly God is visible. It's John 1, isn't it? You know, um, you know, he came in flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He tabernacled amongst us. He lived, he made his home amongst us, is, is the beauty of that. And that's what we, we greatly celebrate Christmas. And let's have a party and celebrate it every year. Um, 
And so, you know, Jesus says, you know, it used to be the temple, sacrifice, prophetic ministry, whatever. But Jesus says, I tell you now, in Matthew 12, verse 6, I tell you one greater than the temple is here. You don't need the temple anymore. I'm here. This is how you can know God. Um, just spend a little bit of time looking at the angel of the Lord. Um, because many um, evangelical scholars, evangelical scholars, will say that the Theophanies um, were in fact appearances of Christ prior to his birth in Bethlehem. That is disputed, I want you to know, not everybody believes that. Um, they, they therefore call them Christophanies, appearances of Christ. Um, now, what happens is you see... Um, uh, yeah, um, the angel of the Lord, that phrase. In Hebrew, you've got, you, you've got a definite article, but no indefinite article. So if it's translated the angel of the Lord, it's because they've, they've put it in Hebrew, the. If there's nothing there, it, it's the way, it's the equivalent of an indefinite article that you say a or an. So you could have the angel of the Lord or an angel of the Lord. So where you see the angel of the Lord, it's translated that because in the Hebrew language, it's got that little bit, you put a word on, a prefix on the word to turn it from angel to the angel. One word, but with a bit added at the front. So the angel of the Lord is mentioned 58 times in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, sorry, sorry, the angel of the Lord is mentioned 58 um, and the angel of God 11 times. Um, so you've got angels of the Lord appear either singly or in groups. Um, and when they're uh, first seen, they're usually taken to be men, but by the end of the encounter, one of them is realized to be God, such as in the Rublev's icon there, the three visitors who come suddenly see, actually you can read that, one of them, it, it seems as though one of them is God himself because of the way it talks, the language that's used. Um, and so um, the New Testament also speaks of Christ as, you know, being present. So you've got that, the angel. Um, the New Testament speaks of Christ being present. Um, with the nation of Israel going through the wilderness when it says in Corinthians 10, 3-4 they all ate from the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Um, you know, get your head around that if you can but they, 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 they're feeding and they're drinking and that rock, uh, they're drinking from the spiritual rock it's Christ himself. Um, so uh, you, you've got these, and I've put them in the notes there, you know, um, the time the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. Um, the angel of the Lord uh, is said in Exodus 23, 20, is to have God's name in him. Um, and God promised he would send an angel uh, before the people to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan in Exodus 33, verse 2. But later he said, my presence will go with you tenuous link maybe but it's it's suggesting that the angel that god sends is his own presence himself um and the mysterious visitor which we've already mentioned to joshua um and that angel the commander of the army of yahweh uh, he receives from joshua worship which is not permissible according to revelation 19 for an angel to do um, so, uh, so, so, so all of these things are 
more than hinting at uh, there are these appearances of Christ before uh, he took on human flesh being born uh, which is the incarnation um, but they're, they're, they're precursors even if you see them as appearances of Christ they're, they're precursors at best of what is about to come the real big thing uh, which is Christ taking on human flesh irreversibly uh, taking on human flesh uh, and this is what happens you know my messenger was John the Baptist he's he's we prepare the way for another greater messenger the messenger of the covenant talking about again same word as for an angel the messenger of the covenant and this was Jesus himself so moving on to the incarnation of Christ so um, there's this build up in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, there's this build-up of steady expectation that the Messiah uh, would come. He's going to come and deliver. It's all that God had spoken concerning Christ to the patriarchs, the prophets, and the people of Israel was to find its fulfilment in the long-awaited incarnation of the Son of God. Um, both the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow had all been mapped out in the Old Testament um, at, at St John's we had a preacher come uh, a couple of Christmases ago who sort of ended up with these sort of put ribbons in different parts of the church building and sort of bring them together just how uh, you know just all the prophetic each ribbon being a prophetic coincidence and, and just you know all the prophecies concerning Christ just putting a ribbon on the wall and then unfolding it and bringing it together and saying you know just how uh, it was a great dramatic visual example of just how you know there was so much that coincided with Christ uh, to be beyond sort of accident really just how all these prophecies were fulfilled with Christ um, but not everybody was looking forward uh, to this event, Herod, uh, or even though he was a Jew, um, he'd got these pro-Roman sympathies, and to him the rumoured news of the arrival of Christ posed a threat to his personal position. That's why Matthew 2 verse 3, when King Herod heard this, this is, uh, you know, when the wise men are looking for Christ, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Don't forget, this was they, they'd heard of men coming from the east, which prophetically, the east, if you look in prophetic scriptures, the east was a place sort of for darkness and spiritual darkness and turmoil. And they're, they're disturbed because he's coming from the east. And, uh, and, and they called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law and asked where the Christ was to be born, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. And so... True to what prophetic scripture had uh, called, Christ was born to Mary in Bethlehem. Um, so, but before we, we, we look uh, at the event, we need to ask, was it really necessary? Surely God's sovereign. Couldn't God just save us anyway? Uh, was it really necessary? Um, and, you know, God can always work out his eternal purpose as he wants to, can't he? Um, there's Wayne Grudem in his book Systematic Theology talks about the what he calls the consequent absolutely necessity consequent absolute necessity view of the atonement. But in other words, once God decided that He loved us, 
Um, because he, couldn't, he didn't have to decide to save us, did he? I mean, what happened? Angels? What happens to some of the angels? Gloomy dungeons they're put into, um, awaiting judgment, and, uh, you know, they're, they're not saved. Uh, the angels that rebel aren't saved. But God decided, for some reason, that he wanted to save um, humanity, those that had put his own image into at creation. He wanted to save us. Uh, and so, in order to save us, it needed uh, the incarnation because he had to send, no human being could do it. He had to come himself um, to, to save us. And um, it, that's why it was, a, 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 the consequence was the absolute necessity of the atonement of, of, of Jesus coming and being born and taking on human flesh. Because only one who was both God and man could achieve our salvation. Um, if, if, if God and man were to be reconciled, uh, if the atonement at one meant, the Anglo-Saxon word means sort of a reconciliation, at one meant, atonement, if, if that was to take place, Jesus had to partake of the nature of both God and man. He had to partake of human nature. Um, that's why Timothy writes this, it, um, it, Paul writes to Timothy, there is one mediator, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I put it in your notes, I think, there's a book, sort of a more recent book out by Graham Tomlin, um, The Ever-Widening Circle, where he, his first two chapters are just brilliant on explaining just that mediating role of Christ, how he takes on human flesh and takes on uh, you know, in his divinity takes on human flesh without giving up his divinity. Um, it's, it's a crucial issue which we're going to see. But, you know, uh, Paul writes again, Colossians 1, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Um, through death, to present you whole in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If there was no incarnation, he couldn't write that. Um, it's through his physical body uh, that we are reconciled through his death of his physical body. Um, the sinful nature um, uh, of human humanity was the result of the fall of Adam the representative man. Well, some theologians put it like this, they talk about the, um, the federal view of, of um, uh, this way, in, in terms of Adam was the head of humanity, uh, and he was, what he did, we did, because he was our head. Um, it's a bit like, um, going back some years now, but you remember going to war with Iraq? You say, I never went to war with Iraq. Yes, you did if you were a UK citizen because our federal head, Tony Blair, decided he'd go to war with Iraq looking for these bombs or what, you know, nuclear weapons that weren't there in the end. But, but anyway, that's beside the point. We went to war with Iraq because our federal head decided to do it. So we were, if you like, in one sense, we were in Tony Blair because he was our federal head. And we're all guilty of having gone to war with Iraq. You might have protested against it, but guess what? You, you, the country, because we'd had someone in government in charge that, that took us to war with Iraq. Adam sinned. 
What that means is when my daughter gives birth to a baby in whenever, how many weeks time it comes up, that baby, yeah, will go and look at it and say, looks like Winston Churchill probably and do all the normal jokes that we do about babies and how cute it is and everything. But I won't say this to her, but I'll look at the, you know, what a dirty, rotten sinner. <laughs> I won't say that to her because it wouldn't go down well. But, 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 it, but that's what will be going through my mind because that baby will be born in Adam. Yeah? Something will happen, and I believe it will, and, and, and there's a whole thing of sort of, yeah, babies if they die and all that. I, I get all that. Don't worry about David and, you know, return to me and all that. I, I get all that and, and God's grace and in the end God is a judge. Anyway. But, but my expectation is that something will happen to that baby and that baby because she's got godly parents and a very godly grandparent or two um, you know but something will happen to that baby where the 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 baby will change from the federal head which is what we've all done I'm, I'm expecting is that instead of you know tony blair took us to war but we we we, we, we adam took us into sin yeah but then if we change our federal head we will change our status from being in adam to be in christ and we'll be set free and everything will change. But it took Christ only by sharing in our humanity. Um, you know, uh, you, so, so Paul, Romans 5 verse 12 to 19, contrasts this, the one man, Adam, with the one man, Jesus Christ. Do you get this point we're making? Yeah, so you've got to be, um, you know, you, you're either in Adam or in Christ. You're not one or the other. You're fully in one or fully in the other. So um, this is only possible because Christ shared in our humanity and he could become the high priest, the one who doesn't just mediate as if he's settling an argument, but the one who is, is he's the one who brings in this, this life of God to those who embrace him and so he's the only one who he's the only one who's unique in this he's the only one who fully has the godhead within him he is a hundred percent god and a hundred percent human how can this be is what you're all shouting out because <laughs> that's 200 percent dave my wife's a maths teacher i try and explain this to her every no i don't um but but yeah, 100% God, 100% man. Jesus became, as we're going to see, you actually have one man, one person, two natures. It's called the hypostatic union, is the phrase that was the theological term that was coined for it. Don't worry about that for the moment. Okay, but so Jesus became our high priest. He's able to sympathize as a man. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, uh, Hebrews 4.15. And he shows us by example how to live in the world. He's an example not just for us, but maybe an example of us, of what we are intended to be. You're not living as a proper human until you've encountered Christ and entered into what he's accomplished for us. Our true humanity, there is nobody more human than a believer, a, a, a Christian, a disciple, a follower of Christ. That is your, your true humanity is expressed the more you become like him. Um, he is an example 
not just for us, but an example of us. This is how we can be. Uh, and that's probably why John writes, as he is, so also are we in this world. This, this God man We're not gods. We're not God. Uh, but we take on something. We allowed, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, you know, we're participants in the divine nature. There's something happens as we enter into Christ. We, we become like him. Um, not fully God, uh, but we take on something of his nature. Now, the virgin birth... You know, so, so, so you know, the Word became flesh. It's right, coming up to Christmas. This is so good talking about this now. The Word became flesh, and um, John one fourteen, and uh, and you know, Jesus was born to Mary in a stable in Bethlehem. Um, so, looking at the virgin birth, it's important. The virgin birth really, really matters. Uh, it, it isn't something you can gloss over. We have to really get hold of this. The New Testament teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin and, and to the person without faith, it's always been a problem uh, since the unregenerate mind refuses to acknowledge the truth of the angel Gabriel's statement, nothing is impossible without God. <laughs> You, you don't believe that unless you've got some faith in you, some faith stirring up within you. And I want to stir up faith in you and you know, just want to say to you, well, nothing is impossible without God. Uh, with, 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 with nothing, nothing is impossible with God, I should say. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, the Christian can accept without reserve the Bible's affirmation, you know, Matthew 1.18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child. Before they came together, do you get that? Um, uh, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and, you know, this wasn't believed by Jesus' contemporaries. You know, he had a tough time because of this and was accused of being born illegitimately. Um, and, uh, you know, they saw him as having been fathered by Joseph before Joseph and Mary were married. Uh, and they referred to him, Matthew 1, 13, 55, they referred to him as the carpenter's son. He wasn't. Uh, or Joseph's son, Luke 4.22. I know he was brought up, but, but, but they, they meant, you know, it was illegitimate. And they even go in um, John 8.41, we read, when the Jews are in conversation with Jesus, they say, we're not illegitimate children. Uh, and the we is emphatic um, in its position uh, and its form. They were implying that Jesus was. <laughs> we're not illegitimate children. Uh, we're different to you. Um, but Matthew and Luke, uh, just a quite unequivocal on this, they settle the issue, Jesus was born of a virgin Mary, by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the Old Testament had sown the seeds for a virgin birth in Isaiah 7. Yes, a prophecy that was to do, it was a strange thing because it can translate that word virgin there as a young woman uh, during the reign of King Ahaz you know um, a virgin will conceive and give birth um, and it's how we take it when we look at the way Matthew and um, Luke declare it we, we can take it in, in, in terms of it's an Old Testament prophecy that had significance for that time but like so many Old Testament prophets was also had another level of meaning for the future um, so uh, uh, the, the whole sign of this was 
to express God's commitment uh, to the promise found in verse 14 of Isaiah 7. Uh, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and he will give birth to a son. He'll call him Emmanuel. I in the Old Testament, E in the New Testament, the spelling of it. But you know these days in which we live and especially at the time you know in our country in the UK at the moment well across the world isn't it with all that's going on in the world cost of living crisis war um, you know Covid just still don't tell me you're all over Covid lockdown it's it affected us all and we're still you know coming out of it you, you haven't got over it yet it still sort of has an impact on everybody just that whole lockdown and we're seeing that but all that's going on you know just this sign even as we come into Christmas you know there's this message from Isaiah comfort comfort ye my people says your God speak comfortably to Jerusalem that there's a comfort as we celebrate Christmas coming you know we celebrate this Christ came God became took on human flesh there is hope there's there's something for us here Um, Emmanuel it means God with us uh, you know, you really, you just, I just want to live more and more. My prayer is, how on earth, do, why do I go through the day? I can start off reading my Bible and praying and whatever, and then forget about God until I go to bed at night and then think I'm going to say some prayers again. And you think, it's ridiculous. What a silly way to live. God is with me. And I can, you know, he calls me, invites me into fellowship with him. God is with us. All because Christ came and took on human flesh. And means God's with us. So Mary, unsurprisingly, you know, responds to Gabriel with the announcement, know, how can this be? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Um, and in due course, Mary gave birth and the incarnation became this wonderful reality that we're about to celebrate. The long-awaited Messiah entered the human scene. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. The Logos uh, came amongst us. And just Charles Wesley, let's have a carol. Charles Wesley's carol captures it wonderful. Hark the herald angels sing. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Beautiful, beautiful words, which I love singing um, on Christmas Day and at any other time as well. But Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And um, it's not just, uh, you know, a miraculous conception. There's something more than that. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, It wasn't just a physical miracle. And it's important uh, that Jesus could fulfill his role as the last Adam as it says in 1 Corinthians 15.45. Had he been born son of man, he'd never, he, would have, he, he would have had the seed of the original Adam within him and be a partaker in original sin. The, the, what Adam, you know, what Adam is the, the head, what we were talking about, of the new race. Tertullian, an early church father, wrote this. He said, it was not fit that the Son of God should be born of the seed of man, for then he would have been entirely a son of man. He would not have been the Son of God at all. The divine germ 
had to be substituted for the human seed. The divine germ substituted for the, conceived by the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't when Mary gave birth, it was at the time of conception that the miracle happened, uh, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit put in something of Godness into a physical body that became Jesus of Nazareth. Um, so, the, uh, you know, we, we've talked about um, the federal head. Uh, so Jesus, as the federal head of the new race, was, was able to, to, to take on, um, you know, this this new uh, role of being the, 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 the Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam. Um, so let's just be absolutely categorical about this. Without human intercourse, Mary conceived the Christ. And the Spirit kept the Virgin Mary, therefore, from transmitting any taint of original sin. Uh, so Christ remained absolutely free from all trace of original sin. When we talk about original sin, if I, you know, I use this illustration sometimes, if it was a really hot day and you were all thirsty and you had nothing to drink and I got a big barrel of water here that was sort of from a mountain stream and a jug and some cups, who wants to drink? You'd all come running too, wouldn't you? get the drink because you're thirsty, you're dying of thirst, you'd take it. But if I then took a, a, you know, a, sort of a drop of arsenic and put it just one drop into that whole barrel, who wants to drink? Now, no one would come because the whole thing would have been tainted, would have been spoilt by just that one drop. Adam's sin spoilt humanity. And that's why we no longer want to be in Adam. We, we, we need to be, to be truly human, we need to be in Christ. Our humanity is found in him, not in running away from him. Those who are, are, are least human are those who run away from Christ. Those who are the most human are those who, because it's restored, he restores to us what it is to be truly human. Um, so, reasons for the virgin birth, you know, um, it's distinguished, it's sort of the unique nature um, shows something of the uniqueness of Christ himself. Um, you know, this, is, this, is, this unique nature of Christ is up for grabs, especially in multicultural, uh, you know, uh, Britain today, where choice seems to be what really matters to people and having a choice. And a choice of religion, you know, all religions lead to God. No, they don't. Um, uh, you know, it's Christ is, there's one mediator, you know, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We've got something to proclaim, not in an aggressive, nasty way to people of different religions, but in a way that makes it clear to us, because we can be sort of, it can seep into the church sometimes that we, you know, it doesn't really matter, does it? They believe in God, it's the same God at the end of the day, isn't it? No, it isn't. Um, there's, there's, you know, Christ. Uh, there's only one, uh, you know, who, who is able to save us. No other name has been given under heaven uh, by which men can be saved. Um, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now that involves, it isn't like a doctrinal statement for us to go bouncing, hammering other people of other religions, but it's a way for us to understand. It's about relationship. He is the way to the Father. It's about following him. Um, no other name, you know, that verse from Acts 4, it's given in a context of, um, you know, th th there's this way that you need to repent of. 
you, you Jews, that you crucified him is what comes in just a few verses above. Now you need to understand there's this relationship that you can have with him. Our following Christ is all about relationship, relationship, relationship. It's not about having doctrinal statements that we bash people with. It's about relationship with him. This is why I'm saying, you know, it, it just matters. I don't want to go by when I'm driving down to the Hayes Conference Center. I'll listen to a bit of radio too. I dare say I will. I'll listen to the news or whatever. But I want to be, I want to be in relationship with him and maximize that because that's what he's come for um, so his virgin birth demonstrates the centrality you know is, is the last Adam changes us you've got these reasons here um, he, he'd it had been the natural child of Joseph and Mary um, it just he'd have become um, you know he'd have had to attach himself in some way uh, God would have had to attach himself to this human being plus God, uh, and that's a heresy, Nestorianism, which we might look at in a minute, or, or, or merely fill in the way the Holy Spirit had, had filled godly men. It was very different. Um, neither scenario fits the biblical picture, but in fact, in order that the second person of the Trinity might become man, the Holy Spirit fashioned the necessary genes and chromosomes that could be the vehicle of Christ's person in uniting those with the body of the Virgin. Um, and um, yeah, so, so really wanted to get on to perhaps what is the, um, the heart of what we're talking all about Jesus is looking at, um, you know, his divine and human natures, plural. Because what are we saying happened is Christ, the eternal one, had a great conversation with John in the, in the break. No, Tom, Tom in the break, yep. Um, yeah, don't worry, John. Um, a conversation with, with Tom in the boat just about how he'd been um, speaking at his own local church, just about people, just this whole very point of people not understanding about, you know, God, uh, that just because Jesus is called the Son of God, that God didn't have a son at Christmas, and, uh, you know, this whole thing about his, his nature um, that being there. That, that is, Christ is the eternal world, without beginning um, and without end, but without beginning, Christ the eternal world, he took on hu human flesh. Um, John 1, 1, John 1, 14, Philippians 2, 6, 11, as in the notes. Um, exactly how the Messiah, this promised one, is both God and man, at the same time, Scripture doesn't set out in a formula. It's, the Bible is not a systematic theo you know, theology book, which is what causes issues in church history. Um, and again, we're sitting on the shoulders of those who've wrestled with these issues, and we're going to look at some of the heresies that emerged in the early church uh, around this, and it's very easy for us to, with hindsight, to look back on them and think, weren't they stupid or weren't they heretical? These were people just like us, try seeking and groping after truth and wrestling with it, with difficult issues to try and find it. Because the Bible doesn't present it, you know, 
crystal clear in a way uh, we have to do. Coming back to what I was talking about early on, there is always a theological task. There's work to be done. And well done for coming to things like this in sort of helping you, equipping you to, to wrestle with theological questions yourselves. There's, the, 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 it isn't easy to, to sort these things out, but... Um, so the teaching on the Bible, on, on the aspects of the person, focuses us to the conclusion, with the help of you know, others who spent thousands and thousands of hours in church history going through it, but it focuses us uh, to, to um, you know, the infinite... Uh, the conclusion that the infinite and finite, the eternal and the temporal, the changeless and the changeable, the growing, aging, etc., that they unite in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, I'll say that again. You know, the infinite and the finite, the eternal and the temporal, the changeless and the changeable, uh, unite in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, and so John, in his Gospel, tells us the Word, capital W, <laughs> uh, the Logos, became flesh. The Logos became flesh. The Logos did not superimpose himself upon an existing human being. The Logos himself became flesh taking on a human nature that did not exist independently of him. Um, the Logos was thus the person of the Son of God with both divine, both divine and human natures. Um, so, when we're looking at this, it's really important that we remember that nature is one thing and person is another. Um, two natures combined in Jesus. We're not saying he was schizophrenic. Today I'm the Son of God. To you know, tomorrow I'll be Jesus of Nazareth. No, he was. T he was two persons in. He, he was. He, he he wasn't two persons in one. He was one person with two natures. Um, nowhere do we find him making a distinction between a divine personality and a human personality. Uh, he never, for example, employs the language of Genesis where God refers to himself in the plural. Let us make man in our own image. He never refers to himself in the plural. He's singular. He's one as God. This person, this one person of the Godhead has two natures. Um, so, uh, you know, most of the historic creeds and confessions of the church have understood Christ as having two distinct natures combined in one person. Um, so, you, you, we'll come on to the creed of Chalcedon in a minute. Um, You've got, as I say, this talk, um, you know, when you're looking at this in the early church, trying to sort this out, um, it was a struggle. Uh, as you'd expect, this mystery of the incarnation. And through the centuries, the early centuries of the church, uh, there's been a variety of attempts to define the person of Christ in respect of his divine and human natures. And debates took place for the first four centuries of the church. There was a lot of sort of councils, church leaders meeting together. 
screw up that bit of paper, flow it on the floor, that wasn't quite right, let's try again, no that isn't quite right, took ages, many many years for them to come up with a creed, a formula that, that, that put it in, in, some, in, in some clear way, or as clear as we can get it, and, um, and between AD 325 and AD 451, um, different schools of thought emerged, what's interesting is we have these creeds, these um, you know early church creeds done by the church fathers, that which we still use today, uh, and they help set out for us what Christian truth is, what orthodox Christian truth is. Um, but they were as a result often of um, heresies that were uh, emerging and you often find that truth comes about and the establishment and the, um, the, 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 the putting down on paper, what's the word I'm looking for, the, the, the clarification of truth often comes about as we wrestle with how do we counter heresy. Uh, there's a German theologian, Helmut Thielucker, who said, and this is for us today I think even still true, is that sometimes you have to risk heresy to discover truth. Uh, that you have to let your mind wander, let your mind be free, let your mind be broader perhaps than it is. Don't be just confined to, this is what I believe, I'm sticking to it. Think a little, do some theological thinking, consider things that you wouldn't necessarily consider, and discover truth as you do it led by the Holy Spirit so you can discover truth in a fresh and a new way. So... Um, the, 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 cate the, the, the just you know got different um, categories which are put down in the notes for you um, all sorts of heresies but the, the one set of heresies were denying Christ's deity um, some like the Ebionites, a Jewish Christian sect of the early Christian era, held that Jesus was the natural son of Joseph and Mary, in other words, denying the virgin birth, and that his divinity meant no more than that the Holy Spirit descended on him, making him the son of God, in a less than biblical sense. Um, so it fails to bridge that view, fails to bridge the gap between God and man, leaving us without a saviour. The Apollinarians uh, took on a similar view, holding that the Logos took the place of the human soul. Um, God the Son, they maintained, entered a human body so that Christ didn't possess a full human nature, that he was separated from that human body, just being the part of it, the soul. The Monarchians so stressed God's unity that they saw Jesus not as a God, as God made man, but only as a creature whom God adopted as his son. So all of those just end up denying Christ's deity. And then there's other um, heresies that were denying Christ's humanity. Uh, some saw him as only divine. Um, you know, left with the problem how to explain his evident humanness, they concluded that he only seemed to be human. The docetists, from the Greek dokeo to seem, uh, said his body uh, was a vivid illusion and merely a vehicle for his divinity. Having no real body, he could not actually die on the cross and consequently the docetists denied the resurrection and the ascension. The Gnostics, who we, we, we mentioned earlier on and come up in some of Paul's letters, um, Another heretical group uh, that developed in the early centuries with a similar approach, though uh, their view of Christ's divinity fell short of the biblical revelation. And then 
Others, heresies denying Christ's personhood, the Sabellians insisted that God is one nature and one person, but has three names and reveals himself in three forms or modes. Uh, Modalism is an alternative uh, expression of that. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Because these three were not separated or separable persons, Christ was reduced to a mere expression. Um, so then you've got uh, Christ as creature, make it a vow of the highest order. Um, there were some who, uh, according to give Christ a high place, couldn't accept that he was truly God. On that basis, he must be a created being. Uh, but he was clearly of a higher order than a normal man, in their view. A spiritual being created by God before the creation of the world and given the title Son of God. Uh, effectively, therefore, they placed him in a third category, that of the semi-divine, declaring him to be not of the same substance as the Father, uh, but of similar substance. And this is the Arian position, which struggled for the supremacy throughout, which struggled for supremacy throughout the fourth century. He robs, uh, it robs Jesus of his deity, his glory, and his power to save. And you, you know, of various sort of Christian, of various alleged, you know, putting themselves forward as Christian, come knocking at your door, who will talk like that today. Um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Christadelphians are, are sort of in that category, really. And then making Christ a third kind of being, the Eutychians, uh, were wanting to preserve the unity of Christ's person, uh, but held that whereas before the Incarnation there were two natures, there, there was only one composite nature after it. This meant that Christ was neither truly God nor truly man, but a third kind of being. Uh, it makes him unfitted to be mediator, since he can't partake any of the nature of either of the parties needing reconciliation. And then, in complete contrast to the Eutychians, you've got the Nestorians, who we mentioned earlier on. Uh, they're keen to maintain the full manhood of Jesus and make a sharp distinction between his divine and human natures. But they took this to such an extreme as to throw into question his personal unity, thus undermining the very basis of the incarnation. Um, so you've got all these, and you can look up more of these, and look at, but I'm just outlining some of the main... Uh, heresies that were around at the time. The good thing about this is that it actually caused the church to think, sit down and get together. How do we counter these? How do we put something down and work this out? And as I say, there was a lot of screwing up of paper and throwing it on the floor as they gradually and took them a long time to work out a creed. And so various church councils met, conferred, um, church leaders got together and they formulated their doctrine of Christ, clarifying it in response to the heresies uh, mainly saying what Jesus was not. And it all came to a head in the Council of Chalcedon, uh, held in 451, so long after, uh, you know, 400 plus years. And they wanted to bring resolve to the debates once for all. Um, last time I taught this, actually, at this, um, you know, people were saying to me, well, surely it was obvious, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. It took a long time to sort this out. And uh, uh, it did take time. And, you know, but this is what they came up with, a statement that took into account his human and divine natures. And this is a statement. I've got it in your notes. If you want to follow it, I'll just read it. Because this is... Um, what we're into really. Our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, 
of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood like us in all respects apart from sin as regards his Godhead begotten of the Father before the ages but yet as regards his manhood begotten in the last days for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin one and the same Christ Son, Lord, only begotten recognised in two natures without confusion without change without division without separation the distinction of natures uh, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence not as parted or separated into two persons but one and the same son and only begotten God the word Lord Jesus Christ so um, those conclusions of that council, it's, it, it, you know, if your mind isn't popping, don't know what's wrong with you. Um, but they, 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 they formed, um, you know, they're summarising this phrase that you'll see, you know, in, uh, from time to time, the hypostatic union, which is simply um, saying that two natures, uh, one person, only one person, two natures. Any thoughts, any comments, any questions? Uh, it, it, it's crucial. It's, this is just so, so major that we understand this. And, um, you know, it, it really affects um, how we live and how we act. Um, if we just look on Jesus as, well, he was God, um, you know, became flesh but sort of he wasn't human uh, it, it does affect the way we see things like the miracles the way Jesus prayed um, what he did the way he lived on earth we say well he was God so he, of course he was different to us but when we begin to understand he was human <laughs> uh, he was just like us he had to be otherwise you've not you're not saved you've got no salvation no hope if he wasn't just like us he had to read Hebrews he had to become like one of us you know with our feelings our emotions he had to know he became nothing uh, you know he emptied himself big discussion on that the word kenosis that emptying what did he do uh, but, but but he had to become just like us he was a hundred percent human but still was God so you get two extremes when it comes to like should we expect to pray for miracles should we expect to move in the supernatural you get two different views you get people who say look at it and say well what Jesus did he did it because he was God and then you get people like myself and like all of you I would imagine I hope <laughs> I hope you agree with me um, you know so well actually what Jesus did he was human but he was anointed by the Holy Spirit and so what he did he did as a human being as a normal human being anointed by the human spirit you say but Dave that means that we can raise the dead we can heal the sick we can cast out demons we can cleanse a leper yeah because uh, Jesus actually said to his disciples greater works than these you will do uh, you know and, and so you end up with it can sort of like blow up your view of what it means to live as a Christian if you begin to understand the hypostatic union it really really does make a difference to how you live um, but you've got all this sort of bombarded with thoughts well hang on if he was God and you know how does this all work out 
Um, as I said, I lived in Congo for, 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 for 10 years and, and then went back and did some teaching there as well, quite a number of years. But one of the ways I, to explain this when I was teaching in Congo was a story that came from there. Um, uh, those who have been to Africa, and just talking in the break, some of you have, uh, and uh, you know full well. Um, like within, I, I lived in a very, I've got to explain, I lived in a very rural part of Congo. It was right in the middle of nowhere. There were no dirt, you know, it was dirt roads, no tarmac road or anything, no running water, no electricity. And you sort of, it was a privilege really, because you went back in time almost to a, a, a culture that is sort of, dying out in the world today. But we went back into a culture where you had sort of tribal chiefs who carried, you know, I know you still have tribal chiefs all over the place, but um, we have to say people group chiefs now, but, but <laughs> tribal chiefs and living in an area where you, you ended up with a tribal chief who would come along with his robes on, all his robes, just everybody knew this was the chief of the, 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 the local chief. And he would have running around in front of him, somebody, a little boy with a stick normally just chasing away demons. This was the culture and chasing away demons and you'd see him coming from miles away and everybody would know this is the tribal chief coming you had to show enormous culturally you you respected the, the, the tribal chief you disrespected him you were in massive trouble um, he was a big shot guy you never argued with him you never asked him for money even if he took something of yours you just like he's the chief um, he sort of owns a place you're privileged to be in his territory he was the tribal chief now because there was no electricity, no running water or anything, well, the, the toilet situation was sort of, you dug a hole and run about three meters deep and you put little steps in so you could get down and carry on digging and people with buckets would lift out and that would be your toilet. And then you put like a mud brick wall around it or whatever uh, and sort of put sticks on it. It, 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 it. it was the last time actually I was in Congo um, in 2016, uh, someone fell it down because what would happen, you put big wooden things down and then turn Termites would come and start eating the wooden thing, so you'd go into the toilet to do your business and you could fall into it, and that happened from time to time. Um, well, the story that happened, that the, 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 a boy went into the toilet, to the latrine, and fell, and fell down in it, and here he is, this sort of eight-year-old boy stuck at the bottom in all the muck and the mire uh, and the smell and the horribleness of that and um, sort of people are gathering around saying who is going to go and rescue him um, and people began to move away walk away who wants to go and you know um, anyway as they were discussing this and spending a long time discussing it while the poor boy was wallowing around down below and um, along comes none other than the tribal chief with a little boy chasing away the demons in front of him with all his robes on all his sort of you know this fantastic sort of he's here <laughs> he's here um tribal chief's coming um and everybody sort of backs away a bit what's going to happen now and the tribal chief says i'll go and get him um unusual behavior from him to say that but he says i'll go and get him what does he do he takes off all his robes, all that symbolizes, all that, he takes them all off, just puts them to the side, and just in his undergarments, he begins to go down the little steps that they make when they dig in the hole. He goes down into the muck, into the mire, 
and he picks up this little boy, puts him on his shoulder and climbs back up. The tribal chief rescued the boy stuck in the muck and the mire. The question to ask is when the tribal chief came in all his glory with his robes on, was he the tribal chief? Of course he was. When he went down into the pit and into the muck and mire and had taken off all his robes and all his majesty that went with it and all the perks, no little boy chasing away demons for him in, 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 in the pit. Was he still the tribal chief? Yes, he was. But he'd taken on another nature. He'd taken on the nature of a servant to rescue the little boy. Now, it's an analogy, it's a picture, and it doesn't work completely, but at least it gives some indication as to what we can understand the hypostatic union, that Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, comes all of glory, you know, eternally, angels, you know, worshipping and adoring him in his Father's glory, sharing the same glory that his Father has. What does he do? Philippians 2, he takes off all the perks of being God the Son and goes down, born in a, Beth, you know, in a stable in Bethlehem, becomes the human embryo, he becomes the little boy that has to learn, that his understanding is no longer complete, that he has to learn how to speak, he has to learn things, he doesn't know what's happening in the next village or the next town, he doesn't know what's going on, because he's taken off all of that, all the perks of being God, and he's become fully human, but he's still God. He's still God. And, um, and for me, I just think that's a, um, a way of explaining, not perfectly, but a way of explaining something of what Christ did. Because what it means is we then better understand is when Jesus says, you know, greater works than these you can do, think, whoa, but you were God. Yeah, but look, he put all of that to one side, and of course he's still God. You, did, any, any thoughts? Any, anybody want to say anything? We're going to finish at half past no matter what, so feel free to say something. You won't be dragging it on. <laughs> yeah, David. When, when Jesus um, performed miracles, for example, the woman who knew what she'd done. Yes. So he was being pressed by the crowd. Yes. Did he know that as God? Or was that a revelation by the Holy Spirit? Yeah. So what I'm arguing is I believe that was a revelation by the Holy Spirit. All that Jesus did, he did as God because he, was, he didn't give up being God, right? But I believe he functioned in his humanity anointed, because if you want, I mean, when I was at primary school, I used to have all these silly stories. I don't know why, I must have gone to a bad primary school, but the assemblies were, were bad, they were bad. I still remember them, or perhaps it's just I remember the bad ones. But I remember about Jesus when he was a little boy, the sparrow was broken wing, and he puts his hands on it, heals the sparrow, the broken wing, and it flew away. I used to believe all that stuff until I read my Bible. Where'd they get that from? And I still don't know where they got it from. A load of cod's wallop. Um, but Biblically, when we look at the scripture, Jesus, bright boy, 
um, you know, talking to the scribe, talking to the, the in the temple, Mary and Joseph lost, <laughs> they lost the Son of God. Um, they lost him and uh, 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 had to go back and find him. There he was having an intelligent conversation with the teachers of the law. Bright boy, but no miracles, nothing supernatural, nothing outstanding apart from being clever uh, is recorded. It's not until he'd gone been into the wilderness, returns in the power of God. It's not until he's been baptized in water, uh, anointed with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God comes on him like a dove and remains on him, that we then see him performing the, the signs and wonders that he did. So I, my conclusion is that all that he did, he did in the power of the Spirit as a human being, yet still being God, because that was still his nature. But he put off all the perks all the benefits of being God to take on human nature. And, and yet we see him at the age of 12 in the temple, confounding the, yes, yes. the, the theologians yes. um, by his wisdom. Yes. So, in that sense, he was more than just a 12 year old boy, and that was evident by the wisdom that he could answer their questions and ask them yeah. questions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, 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 I mean, yeah, you, yeah, he obviously was, he knew, you know, uh, stuff. And I, I mean, we're into realms that aren't recorded for us in scripture, but presumably, even as a sort of six, seven, eight, nine, he would have had to learn to speak. Um, he didn't sort of start speaking as a baby. He would have had to learn to speak. He would have had to learn so much in his humanity. And presumably, um, because of his sinless nature, his prayer life with the Father would have been quite something. Yeah? Um, but in terms of his ministry, in terms of his operating in supernatural, certainly uh, what are clearly supernatural gifts of healing, raising the dead, cleansing lepers and so on, is that we don't see until after he's been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now this is a challenge for us, I, 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 I get that, it's a challenge for us because we like to have, ex I do anyway, you're probably different, but I like to have excuses not to pray for the sick. <laughs> Um, or, for the, or to believe that the sick will be healed when I pray for them. I mean, I've prayed for the sick and seen the sick healed many, many times. Um, I've certainly not raised the dead. I've seen people raised from the dead. Um, and, uh, you know, wonderful. But I, I, I sort of think that's for other people, not for me. But the challenge is, and I think, you know, I just think sometimes when we were talking earlier on about the church and where we're at now in the world and people not bothering with the church, people not bothering to say they're Christian or moving away from the Christian faith, you know, Islam growing more than Christianity, although it's still very small compared to Christianity. And militant secularism, again, they're measured in their thousands, not their millions, but the, you know, people like to big up these things, but I think, wow, you know, what would happen? I know I'm sounding a bit Bill Johnsony here, but what would what would happen, you know, if the church woke up to realise what we have, you know, in us and what we're called to be? That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. But yeah, Any, anybody want to say anything else? I'm, I'm, I'm... Yes, um, Mikael. Yeah. Um... Just what I've said before, I always assume that um, Christ's human nature and divine nature, he kind of grew into the divine nature. So he was there anyway, for as he got older, he uh, started to uh, reveal itself more and more. 
Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the thing is, is like in terms of a nature, you are who you are. Um, and you, uh, you know, I mean, he was, he was God. Uh, and he, when he was born, I'm talking, using the past tense because I'm talking about his life on earth. He was always God. And as an embryo, that what we were saying earlier on, that sort of conception by the Holy Spirit meant as an embryo, he was God. Um, but he was the tribal chief having descended into the pit um, and, uh, and, and all the perks had gone. But, yeah, I, I think it's quite crucial because I think if you, this is me, right? I think it's quite crucial because I think if you, if you, you can cast off if you, if you sort of think that Je what Jesus did, he did because he was God, then verses like, um, you know, greater works than these you'll do, because I go to the Father, don't make sense. They make more sense for me if I understand, because you go to the Father, and this is perhaps where we're going to land, uh, because you go to the Father, this is, this is, this is something amazing. Um, I'm, I'm going to let you go through the importance of the life of Christ, um, all this Christ and the cross, uh, the resurrection of Christ, and uh, um, I'm going to finish with the sort of in, you know the ascension and enthronement, the kingdom being here. And I'm just going to talk about it. Let's just talk uh, for eight minutes. Um, but the, the, it's the point I was making earlier on about I, I think sometimes Christians were great and. Don't forget, I'm working with Anglicans at the moment, so the Christian calendar is massive. Um, but you, you, sort of, you, you think, yeah, Christmas, wow, that's super. We'll have a big thing, big party at Christmas. Easter, we'll have a big party. Um, and Ascension Sunday. But for me, I think the biggest event in the Christian calendar is Pentecost. Um, because, now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm sure no one will listen to the recording. Um, but... but you know, it, it, they won't have got to this point anyway. They'll have switched off by now. But, but, but you, you, we make a... How can I put this? This is going to sound so bad. Because it's, it's right we make a big deal of the cross. Don't, please don't say Dave Ennett says we shouldn't make a big deal of the cross. We should make a massive deal of the cross, all right? And Jesus' condescension in taking on human flesh and living as a human being. Massive, the condescension of Christ. A.W. Pink wrote a wonderful article on that. The condescension of Christ, the humility of Christ in coming, living in human flesh on this, on this sinful planet for 30 year, 33 years or whatever it was, living in human flesh like that, the condescension of Christ. However, I think there's something... Um, we, we, we sometimes fail to make a bigger thing of what God the Holy Spirit has done. And the Holy Spirit points to Christ, I know that. Um, but God the Holy Spirit was poured out by the risen and ascended Christ. Uh, remember John 7, 37 to 39, on the last greatest day of the feast, you know, come to me all your first livers of riven water. Uh, by this he meant the Holy Spirit, which had not yet been poured out because he had not yet been glorified. But when Jesus was glorified, ascended, sat down at the right hand of majesty in his human flesh. 
It's why he says in John you know, 14, 15, 16, it's better that I go away for you because if I go away, the comforter will come, another helper, another one just like me will come. And this one comes and lives inside of us, is not restricted to a human body, lives inside of us. And so the plan of God, the purpose of God is for the kingdom of God to come, not through God doing something, why don't he didn't do it himself, I don't know, but it's to do it through the church, through brothers and sisters like us working together in unity to see God's kingdom rule and reign come empowered by the Holy Spirit doing greater works than Jesus did um, and knowing the condescension not of Christ in taking on human flesh but the condescension of the person not a force or a power not an it the person of God the Holy Spirit living inside of us eternal you know this anointing that you've received will never be taken away from you. It's not it remains within you, this anointing, this empowering of the Holy Spirit to live a life where it's not about just a struggle with some sinful habit, but far more of an empowering, life-giving, joy-giving uh, experience to others. And we become truly happy because those around us are happy because we're making them happy by bringing something of God's kingdom to them. And for me, um, Martin Studbaker has written a book called Spirit Atonement in the last couple of years it came out and it's the first person I've seen to actually put this down you know in black and white it, 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 it's a beautiful book Spirit Atonement and he talks about you know how the Christian church we've stopped at some have stopped on Good Friday, some have stopped on Easter Sunday, some stop at the Ascension, but we need to carry on with the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. This, was, this is what it's all about. And Christ taking on human flesh is so that he can be an example, not for us, but an example of us. Uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit that there's loads of Christians, little Christs all over the planet, doing greater works than he did. We're not there yet. But don't worry, because the church evolves uh, and the church is getting better and better. And it, he's coming back for a glorious church and it seems to be taking thousands of years for it to get there. But it will get there, I believe, is my view. Um, so, yes, hypostatic union, God taking on human flesh and Christ living one person with two natures. How much more can we live as he lived, so also are we in this world, John writes. Um, you know, partakers in the divine nature. And Christ coming as the mediator, bringing, reconciling man and man to God and God to man in, in, in what he did at the cross. I'm going to stop because, but, uh, um, and uh, there's some food for thought on the hypostatic union anyway. Um, should we just pray? And Lord, we just say thank you. Uh, we love talking about you. We thank you that even as church history shows, Lord, there's, um, there's different ways of looking at things. But we pray, Lord, Lord, that what we've looked at this morning will stir us and challenge us uh, to live lives more um, devoted to you, more consecrated, more committed, more um, just enjoying fellowship with you. 
through the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you hear us, even though you have a human body still now, that you hear our prayers as we pray in the Spirit, and the Spirit himself um, can intercede for us, mate, with groanings that cannot be uttered. We thank you for spiritual gifts that we all have, Lord. We thank you for the gift of tongues. We thank you for the gift of prophecy. We thank you for gifts, Lord, that aren't listed in Scripture that you've given us, and we pray we shall all exercise the gifts that you've given us to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We just ask this in your name now. Amen.